Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. I'm not sure what I love better. The fact that the Fresno Grizzlies minor league baseball team didn't decide whether it was Brooke or Robin, so they just went with Brooke slash Robin Lopez. Or the fact that, as Robin pointed out, the monster is, quote, walking around in a jersey with basketball printed on the front, complemented with flesh-colored shirts. Anyway, as scary as Brooke slash Robin was on Twitter, real Brooke Lopez was even more terrifying for the Raptors. Never mind the Greek freak. Toronto simply did not have an answer for this guy. 29 points, 11 boards, Four blocks, four threes. If Giannis is the Greek freak, then Brooke really is Splash Mountain. If you were expecting to tune into a Giannis v. Kawhi battle, what you got was a Brooke Lopez v. Kyle Lowry battle. And for much of that game, the Raptors were winning that battle. They were winning the war. Lowry was everywhere. He was doing everything. They had a golden opportunity to rip game one on the road after being up seven headed into the fourth quarter. Then Splash Mountain, and by the way, that, that's a nickname and a handle that does not get nearly the run that it deserves. Splash Mountain is awesome. My man got off slowly, but then he started cooking, and he broke out everything. After struggling from deep early in the playoffs, my man finally got it going with this. Giannis to Lopez, straight away, his three-pointer is up, bango, Splash Mountain. And look at this, the Bucks have made it a five-point game. It's Splash Mountain back in service. And when that happens, you know the entire game changes. When you're thinking three, he's thinking reverse, up and under. Five to shoot. Lopez goes to work to the rim. Up, reverse it. Good. What a play. Into the teeth of the defense by Brooke. Right? And then he'll run the break. And then he'll finish with a dunk. And then he'll ice the game with one of his four bombs. Giannis blows it down the lane. Passes out to Lopez. A three. Fires it. Bang! Go! 104-100. Splash Mountain delivers his fourth three-pointer. It's got to be that combination of bam and bingo. Bingo, the Bucks mascot. That obviously is Bucks Radio. That prompted QP, another Fresno legend, to tweet, quote, Hey, Robin, when did you teach Brooke how to shoot threes like this? And why is his celebration cooler than yours? Robin responded with, quote, I'm having the time of my life at home watching Facts of Life reruns. I swear to God, end quote. Doubt that. Then again, knowing these guys may be. My favorite part of that show was 20 years after it went off the air, the then middle school actors sat down for the documentary to look back, and they talked about how the producers were continually ripping food out of their hands because they had all gotten so fat, and none of them made weight. And then nobody wanted to watch a sitcom with a bunch of fat teenage prep schoolers. Anyway, never mind the facts of life. And why that gal Joe was constantly looking to give the other girls the hands. And any dude who looked at her the wrong way. Here are the real facts. Here are the real facts. <laughs> Am I wrong? I mean, Joe was like, likes to fight guy, gal. Natalie, you give me that chocolate cake back or I'm giving you the hands right now. Bang! 
Bingo. That's what I thought, Fat Nat. That's what I thought. Hey, Tootie, put down that 32-ounce, that 32-liter bottle of Coke. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's my Coke. Anyway. Hey, Blair, today's weigh-in day. Get up on that thing. Damn, Mrs. Garrett, get off me. Seriously, I remember watching one of those documentaries, one of those retrospectives, and they were all about that. Like, yeah, man, it was terrible. They literally were taking food out of our hands. They said we were fat. Well, you were. Fat? Anyway, I I digress. I digress. Alvin, here are the facts. Let me give you the facts of life. Milwaukee is up 1-0, which means that it's time to trot out the cliche about how a series doesn't really start until somebody loses at home. Except that was a game that they should have lost at home. Because they were crappy in the first half. They got out to a quick lead. And the building was shaking. Literally. It was lit. It's lit. Bucks fans were lit. It's lit. But then Toronto went on a huge run. That was not the one-man team that we saw during the Philadelphia series. That was the team with Kawhi and Kyle and Pascal and Marcus Gasol and Danny Green and Norman Powell. Everybody was getting in on the act early on. But then it all fell apart. Only three guys scored in the second half. And as a team, they had a total of 17 points in the fourth quarter. That crew just slammed right into the wall. And it was then that Splash Mountain took over. And he finished off that game. And then took to the podium wearing a Fresno Grizzlies jersey. That's going to leave a bitter taste in Toronto's mouth. Game one was right there for the taking. Home court was right there for the ripping. And then it got away. They couldn't finish. And not because they couldn't deal with Giannis, but because they could not deal with Brooke. And you can't help but wonder if that's going to come back to bite them in the ass. That's not just a case of Milwaukee holding serve at home. Toronto got a huge night from Kyle Lowry. Milwaukee couldn't make a shot. And the Raptors led big going into the fourth. Again, you finish that. You rip the home court. You have confidence. You have Mo, And then you're just three games from the NBA Finals. But then it all fell apart, and they walked off the floor to chance of bucks in four, bucks in four. It's not over yet. I don't expect a former Bucks great like, I don't know, Brian Winters or Lou Alcindor, my man Sidney Moncrief, Brad Lojas. I don't expect any of these guys, Paul Dandridge, to bust out and go all Paul Pierce with it and say the series is over after one game. It's not. But Toronto has got to flush this one ASAP. Don't let one loss become two. And for the love of God, somebody, anyone, get up in Lopez's face, get a hand in there, or it's going to be a short series. Because anybody who knows anything about basketball, and Fresno, knows that if you give this guy as much as an inch to operate, he will kill you. And if you didn't know before... You do now. Don't jerk with Brooke Lopez or Robin or whichever one pay, plays for the Bucks, or the other one who watches the Facts of Life. Man, Robin freaking Lopez. This guy's the best. Dude says on Twitter he's busy watching Tootie, Natalie, and Mrs. Garrett instead of watching his brother ball in the conference finals. Brother. You know who else didn't watch his brother ball? Not only in the finals, but ever. Irv. Magic. Hey, Laker fan. Watching Brooke tear up the Raptors last night has got to have you seeing red. Lopez is the perfect complement for Giannis. A big who can pick, pop, 
and knock down threes. I mean, a perfect fit. You know who else Brooke would have been a perfect fit for? LeBron. But Tragic deemed Michael Beasley the better investment over Brooke. And the guy who since then quit the Lakers to get back to his career on Twitter, all of a sudden in his timeline, was silent during Brooke's game. Go figure. Man, even when I don't want to talk about the Lakers, I still have to talk about the Lakers. I mean, I don't know, Laker fan, not to pile on, but I guess you take the good, you take the bad, and there you have the facts of life. A Laker fan? But I guess you guys are just stuck with the real bad. The bad, lately. There is no good. Just bad. Unreal. Bingo! Give me back that game. Ariel Helwani is my guest. Ariel, what's up, my man? How are you? Jim, always a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. How are you? Good, good. Great to have you. So there's a lot of different places where I could start right now, but... Before we get to MMA, let's talk NBA. For those who do not know, you are a New York Knicks fan. I know you work your way through the process of emotions, but take me back to Tuesday. Before that draft lottery, when the Knicks were tied for the best chance of winning the lottery, you broke out your Ewing high tops. What kind of emotions yes. were you feeling? Oh, my gosh, Jim. Uh, that, was, that was a roller coaster of emotions. I woke up that day at around 6.30 with my kids, and I swear my, my, my chest was hurting. I felt tightness. I was lightheaded. I was so nervous because, as you know, the last two decades have been abysmal. They've been a nightmare. I'm a long-suffering Knicks fan. I've been a fan since 89-90 uh, season. And the fact that they brought back Ewing gave me mixed emotions because this franchise has essentially spit in the face of Patrick Ewing. They wouldn't even give him an interview. And all of a sudden, they're going to call upon him to save the day. So it made me feel a little funky. And I also believe that you can't continue to disrespect the basketball gods and hope that they repay you. Of course, it never got worse than when they dragged Charles Oakley, the legend, out of MSG. So I felt funny about the whole thing, but I was trying to stay positive. I'm typically a negative guy, and I tried to call upon all my good luck charms. I brought out the, the Ewing um, high tops. I brought out my lucky socks, my Ewing and Stark socks. I brought it all out. And once we got to the point where the Cavs were out of the equation, once we got to the point that the Suns were out of the equation, I was like, oh my God, we're the last 14% team left. Then fourth pick, Lakers are out of the equation. And I swear to God, I thought it was going to happen. I truly believe at that moment that there's no way that they're going to allow Zion to go to either New Orleans, that, you know, that dead weight of a franchise or Memphis. And then of course, uh, you know, nightmare, uh, the nightmare strikes. But I will say, after 10 minutes or so of grieving, it, it, it occurred to me that the prodigal son from my home country of Canada, Rowan Barrett's son, Rowan Barrett, who once starred for the Canadian national team, is going to be the guy to help turn around this franchise, and it couldn't have worked out better. So I believe in R.J. Barrett. I hope they pick him, and I think he's going to be the first step in turning this whole bad boy around. Contractors can rely on Ferguson to provide a winning game plan for any job, any day. Thanks to their pro pickup service, you can choose from thousands of products to order online and pick up in store, which makes doing business with Ferguson the easiest part of your day. Ariel Helwani. Maybe the days of everybody laughing at the Knicks and Knicks fans are finally over. All right. Over, Jim. It's over. And guess what? I don't mean to interrupt, but we're tired of being the laughing stock. You know, even, even the network that I work for, I'm tired of seeing that kid crying. Those days are over. I understand Dolan's still there. I understand Mills is still there. But I swear to God, on June 20th, we're going we're gonna to draft R.J. Barrett. Then on around July 4th or 5th, KD's going to come. And then Kyrie will be the other shoe to fall. And then we've got Knox and Mitchell Robinson, who I'm very high on. Those days are over. Mark my words. Pat O'Brien said it. 
May 12, 1985, when they got the first pick. Basketball is back in New York City, my friends. That's what he said when Dave the Busher was pumping his fist. Mark my words, basketball is back in New York City. Ariel Helwani joining us on the program. If I had time, I would ask you how much you trust Kyrie Irving based on what you saw from him in Boston. But, but, yes. let's get to the UFC. Now, before we get to the upcoming cards, what did you make of Jessica Andrade and how that fight ended Saturday night with Rose? It was honestly heartbreaking to watch because Rose has never looked better in her year, and that includes when she beat Yoani on Jacek twice, who many people consider to be the greatest strawweight of all time. She looked so good in that first round. I mean, that was a master class. It was virtuoso. Her jab, her quickness, she was on point. She was confident. She had been out for 13 months. A lot had been made of the time off. A lot had been made of the fact that she was coming off of a neck injury. A lot had been made of the fact that she was fighting in enemy territory in Brazil against a Brazilian. I mean, everything was against her, and she looked incredible. And then, of course, she gets slammed on her head. And so initially, it's frightening. It's scary. I mean, that could have turned out to be disastrous for her, career-threatening for her, life-threatening, potentially also disastrous for the sport. Thankfully, she's okay. Andrade, her nickname... In English, she's Brazilian. Her nickname in English means pile driver. Like, that's something that she goes to. In fact, she tried to do it earlier in the fight as well. And so I don't begrudge Andrade. I don't take anything away from her. What she did was 100% legal. She did not do anything illegal there. The problem was Rose held on to the Kimura. She held on to the arm. And because of that, she wasn't able to tuck in her head. And that's why she landed on her head. So it was kind of a technical mistake on Rose's part. I feel bad for her, but Andrade is now the champion. I hope Rose doesn't retire. I know she sort of alluded to that. I understand the pressure that she was under. I think she'll take some time off and come back in maybe six to eight months. And I want to see her keep fighting. She's in her mid-20s. She looked that good in the first round. I want to see how much better she can be. You know, one thought about that move. The move, and you're right, it's really scary to witness, but it is legal because there was an arc to it. That said, is that a rule that should be reviewed? So that has come up in the last couple of days. Um, look, you cannot pick someone up and literally spike them. You cannot do that. But why this one is different is because Rose kind of contributed to it because she was holding on to the arm. That's the big difference here. So if Andrade would have just picked her up and, like, pile drove her like the Undertaker, that would have been a problem. That would have been illegal. That's a spike. In this case, because she was holding on to it, you kind of have to put part of the blame on her, on Rose, because she was holding on to that arm. We have seen title fights end via KO slam to the head like that, like a body slam, if you will. We've never quite seen it land that flush, and that's why it was so scary. Um, but, I mean, wow, we've never had a, a like serious injury in the 26th year of the UFC. I'm, I'm always sort of feeling that, you know, the sport is one serious career, life-threatening injury away from, from really being in trouble. Thankfully, that did not come May 11th. Ariel Helwani joining us on the program. UFC Fight Night is this Saturday. I know it's a card that interests you. What about that card catches your attention? Okay, so there's a few things here. Like, this card has totally flown under the radar, and part of that is because there's just a lot of cards right now, and there's a lot going on not only in the UFC, but Bellator, PFL, there's just a lot of MMA on television. And you're coming off a pay-per-view, and a lot of fans are excited about the summer. They just booked Ferguson Cerrone. Nate Diaz is coming back in August. They just booked that as well. But I like this fight for a couple reasons. I like this card for a couple reasons. Number one, the main event, Kevin Lee versus Rafael Dos Anjos. Dos Anjos has lost two in a row. He's a former champion at 155. He knocked out... Um, Anthony Pettis way back when to win that, that championship. He beat him up, but then got knocked out by Eddie Alvarez to lose the belt. And he's a tough guy, but he's lost two in a row. And he's lost two in a row against wrestlers, Colby Covington and Kamara Usman. Well, guess what? Kevin Lee is a wrestler. And what's so interesting about Kevin Lee in this case is that he's moving up for the first time to 170 pounds. He has fought at 155 for his entire UFC career, but he is literally depleting himself before the fight. I mean, he is 
so scary looking on the scale, on the scale. He has missed weight. He has had issues cutting to 155. And so in this particular case, he's saying, all right, let me see how I look at 170 against the guy who used to fight at 155. So it's not, you know, a welterweight who's walking around at 200, but he's also part of this charge to try and open up a 165 pound weight class. So the UFC weight classes, in case you don't know, are 155, 170, 185, 205. And this is somewhat of an archaic model. This is the model that they were using back in the 2000s when there just weren't a lot of fighters on the roster. But I think they should do 155, 165, 175, 185. And Lee, Khabib, Donald Cerrone, Jorge Masvidal, Ben Askren, uh, Cowboy Cerrone, Rafael um, um, Dos all these guys would love to fight at 165, but for whatever reason, your buddy Dana White doesn't want to make it happen. So Lee is trying to push that. I think if he looks good, that's, that's, that's sort of more uh, fodder for the, the opportunity to push it. And so I'm wondering if he wins on Saturday and goes on the mic and says it's time for this weight class to finally open up. Ariel Helwani joining us on the program. All right, so how about a quick thought about Conor McGregor? He has not fought in a cage. He has not fought in a cage, I said, since that loss yeah. to Habib in October. And that was only his only UFC fight in the last two and a half years. All of the headlines about him have had nothing to do with fighting. Very few of them have been positive. Where do you think Connor is right now at this point in his career? So we recall that, you know, he made that announcement that he was going to retire a few weeks back. I mean, that wasn't true. He's just at odds with the UFC. They couldn't agree on a fight. They couldn't agree on terms, financial terms. They've changed the pay-per-view structure. But he's not retired. No one believes he's retired. Uh, that's, that's not a thing that's happening. Um, they, they tried to actually get him back July 27th. They had reserved Madison Square Garden for July 27th. Um, with the caveat that he fight on the card. They didn't want to go to Madison Square Garden without him, and they had talked about him potentially fighting Anthony Pettis. Pettis told me on Monday that they offered him the fight, that Dana White himself called them and said, we want you to fight Conor McGregor, and he was down, of course. Also talked about him fighting Justin Gaethje or Cowboy Cerrone. The fight did not materialize, and Conor isn't returning uh, on July 27th. They do hope that he'll return later this year. Uh, they hope that he can get back on track, win one fight, and then eventually try to do that Khabib rematch, and that would be one of the biggest fights in the history of the UFC, if not the biggest fight from a financial standpoint. But they're slowly but surely talking again. They're in communication. Dana White and him haven't had their face-to-face meeting that Dana has talked about wanting to have for quite some time. So hopefully they can kind of get back on track. But the thing about Conor is he, he, unlike anyone in the history of this sport, in the history of the UFC, marches to the beat of his own drum. He doesn't need them. He kind of works on his own time. They work on his time. I feel at this juncture, they need him more than he needs them in the sense that he's making a lot of money. In five years, that will change if he blows his money or has some bad you know, financial deals. But right now, he's making money from his whiskey deal. He's making money from his you know, endorsements. He's made a lot of money thus far. So he's in no real rush to come back. But I do think he wants to fight again, and I wouldn't be surprised if he fights towards the tail end of this year. He is a journalist for ESPN, the host of Ariel Hawani's MMA show, Ariel and the Bad Guy, and the MMA Reporters. Ariel Helwani, our guest. Ariel, great job. Really well done. Good to have you back. Thanks so much. And, Jim, remember, basketball is back in New York City. When they win the championship in the next five years, play this clip. You'll say that I was right. Let's do a little word association here. I'm going to hit you with something, and you blurt out the first thing that comes to mind. Ready? Johnny O, the tweener button. That's right. Johnny O invented and patented the tweener button. It's a hidden button between the second and third button, which is featured on all Johnny O shirts. It's brilliant because it makes sure that you're not too buttoned up and you're not too unbuttoned. The tweener button solves the age-old second button dilemma. 
Do I button one or do I button two? Every Johnny O shirt comes with their patented tweener button, so you're always going to look just right. It is a total game changer. It's brilliant. And right now, you can use the promo code Rome and get 20% off your first order at johnny-o.com at checkout through May 30th. That's 20% off the regular price button-ups, which come in a range of fabrics, patterns, and styles. And shipping is free for orders over $85. Again, johnny-o.com, promo code Rome for 20% off your first order and free shipping on orders over $85. Go to johnny-o.com for your tweener shirt at 20% off. And be sure to check out the wide selection of shirts and other products ranging from polos to shorts to pants, swim, and more. johnny-o.com. Bruce Willis. Yes, the Bruce Willis did not have a good day yesterday in Philadelphia or on Twitter. And he's not having a very good day on this program either. I've done my best to bury it, but I can only do so much. Yesterday at Citizens Bank Park, before the Phillies-Brewers game, my man Bruce Willis, and you know this is a huge Bruce Willis house, he lives about 30 miles outside that city And they rolled him in for the ceremonial first pitch. Let me just say for the record, throwing out the first pitch at any game is a lose-lose proposition. I know I've done this. You fire a strike. You throw a pee. Nobody cares. It's just expected. But if you go all 50 cent with it, you're trending on a loop, not only for an entire news cycle, but literally for the rest of time. So Bruce didn't really do either of those things, but he did just enough to get booed by the city of brotherly hate, which is a pretty low bar in Philadelphia. And that's because Bruce opted to fire his pregame heater from the grass instead of the mound. That's mistake number one. You can't do that, especially if you're some kind of action hero. You got to get up on that bump. And as I mentioned, I've done this before. It's been a long time, but there is an enormous difference between getting in front of the bump and throwing it from the grass as opposed to getting up on the bump and standing up there. There's a big difference. This is why so many people go to the grass. So that was mistake number one. Mistake number two was doing that and then not putting enough mustard on it to even reach the dish. You know that sound, right? That's the oh-so-familiar sound of a horse crap eating town booing a Hollywood legend who just spiked his pitch from about 40 feet. Never mind that one of the most famous people on the planet took time out of his day to show up to the yard on a random Wednesday in May. Showing up is not good enough in Philly. They want Steve Carlton. Instead, They got Dave Coggin. That failed first pitch was enough to get national run last night and this morning. But if the booing in Philly was predictable, then the jungle's reaction to the unflattering picks of Bruce Willis was a stone-cold lock. And right as the photo dropped on the internet, 
of Willis looking like he was trying to smuggle a bowling ball in under his Phillies gamer. The tweet started to flood my mentions. Again, let's be very, very clear on this. Crystal clear on this. This is a huge Bruce Willis house. The diehard movie poster hung in my last studio for over a decade. Push hard enough and I will tell you it's my favorite movie ever. Ever. Not top three, not top five, not top franchise. More than Born, More than John Wick. The original. Die Hard 1, my favorite movie ever. And if I didn't have these TV monitors behind me, you best believe that same framed, signed artwork would still be up there right now. So I hate what you clones are doing to my guy. It's Die Hard, not Fry Hard. It's the sixth sense, not the sixth meal. It's the whole nine yards, not the whole nine lards. John McClain, not John McFlurry. I'm going to tell you it was beneath him to throw out the first pitch on a Wednesday night to a stadium that was only a quarter full. You'll tell me he has no idea what's beneath him because he cannot see past that spare tire. I'll tell you, get off the guy for missing the plate. You'll tell me it's the first plate he has missed in quite some time. Look. I'm going to choose to remember the time he crawled through the air ducts at the Nakatomi Plaza and saved the day. So you can just delete the emails about how the same air ducts would have come crashing down through the ceilings if Bruce Valanche Willis tried it again today. I can already predict the lame tweet that a thousand of you are writing right now You know the one that goes, Welcome to the party, pal. Welcome to the party, pal. Signed, Beaks, Charlie Weiss, Ryan Fitzpatrick, and Beaks. Bruce Willis did not crack the Liberty Bell by sitting on it. He did not eat his pregame meals at both Pat's and Gino's. It's, I see dead people. Not, I see banana bread, people. Get off this guy. He's Bruce bleeping Willis. He's 64 years old, and he'd still kick your ass. He's given us some of the best movies of all time. Like The Expendables. Not The Expandables. Put some freaking respect on this freaking legend. If you want to kill the guy for spiking the pitch from like 10 feet away, you go right ahead. But don't ask me to play the alarm because I'm not doing it. Not to this dude. For the one millionth and last time, keep moving. Reed Forgrave is my guest. Reed, good to have you back. How are you? Jim, I'm great. Those days back in the day... That show was awesome. I absolutely loved every minute of it. Man, that was fun. I appreciate you saying that, Reed. It was a lot of fun to have you on. I knew I had to bring you back to the jungle, too. Let me start with game one last night. You were in Milwaukee for game one. Before we get to the game itself, and I've been spending a lot of time in Wisconsin lately, but it's been a long time since the Bucks were this good. What was the mood like in that city and in that arena? 
It was nuts, man. It was absolutely nuts. First of all, that arena might be the best arena in the NBA. It's certainly in the conversation. Milwaukee absolutely did it right with the arena itself, but also that space outside the arena is it's just so cool. Milwaukeeans love their beer. I may or may not have gone outside an hour before the game to meet a friend who's a huge Milwaukee Bucks fan. I may or may not have had a beer with him. I'm not sure, but I did soak in that atmosphere and, uh, those fans deserve it, man. They've hung in there for a really long time with that team, and uh, that whole city is just absolutely stoked about the Bucks. Reed Forgrave joining us. Now, when you thought about all the possible storylines before that game, were you expecting a battle between Kyle Lowry and Brooke Lopez? <laughs> exactly, right? You two titans of these two teams, the MVP candidates. No, no. I frankly thought that, Brooke Lopez was going to get played off the court in this series. Uh, he wasn't great against the Sixers, but he was been the best game of his entire career, especially when you consider the stakes last night. Those two shots that he hit at the beginning of the fourth quarter changed the game. The Bucks were, I think, 6 of 35 from three through the first three quarters, which it was amazing that they were even hanging in there. Toronto controlled that entire game for 36 minutes. But then when Brooke comes out, hits those two threes at the beginning of the fourth, the whole arena. You could just feel the momentum shifting toward the Bucs. Uh, it, it's a heartbreaking way for Toronto to lose, too, because they were good enough to win. Absolutely. They yeah. were the better team for the majority of that game. They just couldn't finish. It was right there for them, especially when you consider the Milwaukee starters. At one point last night, were two for 21 from deep, so they were having a lot oh. of trouble. And then, Reed, you've got Giannis, who went 24-14-6 and six with three blocks. It says something about where he is right now, that he has a night like that, and the reaction's almost like, yeah, that was kind of disappointing. Like, how much of that was yeah. about what Toronto was doing on defense, and how do you think Giannis is going to respond? They swarmed them. I mean, it reminded me a lot of what the Celtics did in uh, game one of that Celtics series. Giannis was not good in game one against the Celtics. They built that wall. They cut him off in transition and, uh, you know, forced him to pass. He's an incredible passer, but when the shots weren't falling around Giannis like they weren't last night, the Bucs were really, really struggling on offense. And yet, I, don't, I think the Raptors' defense is another level than the Celtics' defense. But you assume that Giannis is going to be Giannis. He always he takes a while to figure things out in a seven-game series. He's such a rhythm player. I think those six days off since their last game might have hurt. I mean, certainly hurt, hurt Milwaukee, and I think especially hurt Giannis. But I fully expect him to be you know, the MVP, the guy that I voted for MVP about a month ago. Uh, I expect to see that by game two. Reed Forgrave joining us. Now, if you look at it like this, the Bucks had the best record in the NBA this year. They've won five straight. They've won nine of their ten playoff games, and they won last night without playing their best. If any other team was on a roll like this, everybody would be hyping them as the odds-on favorite to win the NBA title. So the Bucks are good. In your mind, are they NBA championship this year good? I think they could be. I know that's uh, not the hottest take in the world. I'd still take the Warriors because the Warriors are the Warriors, and they're going to get Kevin Durant back. And he's the, Steve Kerr calls him the ultimate luxury. It's exactly what he is. When the Warriors struggle, they can just be like, yo, okay, get us a bucket. And he does. Uh, And yet, I don't know if the Warriors can stop Giannis. Giannis is an unstoppable force. I, 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 I do think the Warriors... Just if you look at their, the entirety of their season, whether it's the drama that we probably made a little bit too much of in the media, and yet it was still very real, 
the fact that they're aging. They're not quite the same team. I do think this is the most vulnerable version of the Warriors that we've seen in their five-year run. I'd still pick them against the field at the beginning of the year and at the beginning of the playoffs. I still think they would be whoever comes out of the East, but I would absolutely give the Bucks, especially playing the way the fact that they won when they played poorly against an elite Toronto defense last night, I'd give the Bucks a fighting chance. Reed, let me ask you about the lottery, because you were in Chicago for the draft lottery. In fact, you were among the lucky few to be in the sequestered conference room where the lottery actually takes place. First off, they make you surrender your phone before you enter. What's the experience like of going into that room? Yeah, you feel a little naked without your phone, I can tell you that much. Uh, right. It's about two hours where you're sequestered. Uh, it's tense. Once the, you kind of schmooze with executives and the the, the team representatives, there's one representative from each of the 14 teams in there, do a little bit of schmoozing, and then it's time for the lottery. Things get quiet. Things get tense. They bring out the, uh, the lottery machine, which kind of looks like a big water cooler. They, they they open it. It's a very like regal ceremony. They open this plastic box with field that has 14 Ping pong balls have been weighed and certified by an outside agency. They pop them in there, it whirs around like a popcorn machine. And I mean, you could, you could slice the tension in the room with a knife. You really could. And to see Alvin Gentry's reaction when the four numbers came up Pelicans uh, was absolutely priceless. It was worth the price of admission because that guy's been through so much crap over the past several months. He's such a, not just a respected, basketball man in this league, but a respected human being in this league, a guy that is universally liked by players, by media, by fans. It was awesome to see this this wave of joy come over him. He said it was the best moment in 31 years in the NBA. That's how much he believes in Zion Williamson. Uh, it might be the moment that, frankly, saves that franchise. That franchise is in a spot with AD asking out and with sort of just the uncertainty of that small market and who knows where they go from here, the uncertainty of the ownership, I think that moment and what we saw from Alvin Gentry in that moment said it all about what Zion Williamson could mean for this franchise. Reed, for a great my guest. I want to keep you right there for one more moment because I agree with you. I love Alvin Gentry. This is a huge Alvin Gentry house. I mean, that's supposed to be a really serious, buttoned-up process. Has anybody ever reacted like that in that room before? And how did the other team reps react to Gentry's exuberance? <laughs> I think what they said was it was the craziest reaction they've ever seen. Uh, like the biggest reaction they'd ever seen before was essentially a fist pump. Uh, he jumps up from his seat, spreads his arm, arms wide as if, he, as if he's receiving the blessing of Zion, shouts something that I can't say on your fine family radio program. And, and he was just so genuinely thrilled. And, you know, the other 13 guys in the league, they just lost. Uh, and it's not like they're finding joy in his joy, but they genuinely were happy for him. He was slapping him five, and I think because he's Alvin Gentry and because the rest of the league looked at what he went through and what that franchise went through this year and uh, felt bad for him, uh, I think there was a genuine feeling of happiness for that man and for that franchise. All right, so in terms of that franchise, you talked about what that pick might mean to them and to that town. Do they do they think they can find a way to keep Anthony Davis and pair him with Zion, or is that simply just not possible? I don't think it's impossible. Uh, that, that, that whole trade request, the drama of February, March, April in New Orleans felt very out of character for, for Anthony Davis. I'm not saying it was clutch sports, 
that was the uh, kind of using Anthony Davis as their puppet, but I'm not saying it wasn't. It just didn't feel like AD from college to his early years in the NBA to now. He's always been this team first guy. Uh, the, the guy that I uh, talked to John Calipari about him back in college loved him, loved him because he, in the national championship game, he was absolutely off on the offensive end. And he said, I'm just going to play defense. I'm going to let you guys take the load on the offensive end. He was the MVP of that game, despite saying, I want you guys to be the MVP for this game. Uh, that's Anthony Davis. So it all felt very out of character. Uh, in that way, I don't think it's impossible for Anthony Davis to see the possibilities of, you know, an AD, Zion Williamson, Drew Holiday, big three, that I, I'm not sure if a team will score more than 75 points on them in a game all season. That defense is going to be absolutely ridiculous. I don't think it's likely. I think once, once the cat is out of the bag a little bit, it's hard to put it back in. Um, it does feel like like Anthony Davis has those outside pressures to be at a big, at a bigger market, but boy, it, the excitement level of those three guys being together, it, it would be intriguing to see if he at least gives it a try. Reed, if you can do this in about a minute, I want to ask you one more thing. You've made the point that essentially this was a three-player draft, so what do you think the Lakers do with the fourth pick? They had the hardest pick in the draft. I think they trade it ultimately, and I think it was telling when I spoke with Brad Palenka in that lottery room right after the draft that he said, you know, this could be a great asset or a great young player. He said great asset first. Um, it's a tough spot because if you make a pick there, you need a guy who's ready to win immediately. The window on LeBron is closing. He's got three years with the Lakers. Who knows how LeBron-like he is uh, in each of those seasons. So to me, someone like DeAndre Hunter, who is – a two-way player who's been on the big stage before, who has that developed NBA body, a guy who's ready to win, a pick like that makes sense. But if you're taking a guy who's more of a project, uh, that would be an absolutely insane move for a team that has so much pressure to win right now. He covers the NBA and college basketball for CBSSports.com. And again, a panelist from our daily show back in the day, Reed Forgrave. Great job, Reed. Good to have you back. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. As we're moving through the postseason, you're probably watching these playoff games, and you can tell, as any coach or GM will tell you, the foundation of any great team is great talent. It is no surprise that teams dedicate as much time and effort towards finding the right players as they do. The same thing applies when it comes to hiring. You need that top talent, but you don't have endless resources to find it. Luckily, what you do have is ZipRecruiter. They scout talent for you. With ZipRecruiter, one click sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. Their powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and then actively invites them to apply to your job. In fact, ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter are able to get a quality candidate through their site on the very first day. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash clones, ZipRecruiter.com slash C-L-O-N-E-S. I use it. You should. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. It's been about 24 hours since the Jets fired their GM, Mike McCagnan, and their VP of player personnel, Brian Heimerdinger. They named their head coach, Adam Gaze, interim GM. And I still have no idea what the hell they're doing, aside from being the New York Jets. I mean, there was a moment, a brief fleeting moment in time, where there was actually a serious discussion as to whether or not the Jets were the best-run football team in New York. 
The idea being that the Giants were such a mess and the Jets had their quarterback of the future and they were building through the draft. I mean, the whole thing was very un-Jets-like. It's a weird time, too. A weird, weird time where we were hyping the Jets, cracking on the Giants. Up was down, day was night. And then they go and they do something like this. And they totally redeem themselves. They're back to being the Jets. And because of that, all is right in the world once again. Because only the New York Jets would do something like this. And I'm not even talking about firing McCagnan. It's not like this guy was a perfect GM by any stretch. Maybe if you were going to fire that guy, maybe you do that when you fire the head coach, Todd Bowles, at the end of last season. You know, clean the house then. Clean house, get a new GM, get a new head coach, start over, hit reset. This is what most normal, legitimate organizations would do, but not the Jets. Instead, team CEO Christopher Johnson kept him around. And then what did he do? He had McCagnin hire Adam Gase. He had him spend 120 mil in free agency. He had him run the draft. And then, after all of that, he fires him in mid-May. You have this guy do the three most important things that a GM can do. Hire a head coach, spend in free agency, run the draft. And then you fire him when nothing matters? Who's advising Christopher Johnson? Linda and Kurt Rambis? Sheldon Richardson, the former Jet, now with the Browns, said it best. Quote, why they fire him now, after the draft? That's just kind of pointless. End quote. It is kind of pointless. But it is very much on brand for the Jets. And the only way it could have been any more Jets is if Christopher Johnson handled the McCagnin firing himself while shouting, J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. Don't let the door hit you in the ass, McCagnin. J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. Because Johnson was the same guy hyping McCagnin back in March when he said, quote, I think he's terrific at his job. He has a plan that I believe in. It's really key that he's working well with Adam. End quote. A lot of organizations hype guys right up until they fire them. But only the Jets would hype somebody all the way through the most important months of their job and then fire them and then turn it all over to Adam Gase. I repeat, Adam Gase. A guy with a career losing record as a head coach. And you just gave this guy the keys to the castle. Back-to-back losing seasons got this guy fired in Miami. And not just hired in New York, but hired and then promoted in New York. And he hasn't even coached a game. Adam Gase? This dude's getting the Bill Belichick treatment. Gase is shopping for the groceries And cooking the dinner. That Adam Gase. The guy who was freaking out everybody at his own introductory presser with, well, whatever the hell was happening with his eyes. My man looked like he'd been kidnapped, drugged, and taken to that presser. But it turns out he's the one who's got the power. He's the power behind the throne. You thought this guy had been kidnapped by the Jets? He kidnapped the Jets. 
Look, I don't want to visually indict anybody, but maybe you don't throw the keys of the organization to a guy who looks like he's wearing those prank googly eyes. Because then you get the New York Post running with headlines like, The Look That Kills. (laughs) I haven't even gotten to the best part yet. Because right after McCagnin was axed, word came out that Gase never even wanted Le'Veon Bell. You know, Le'Veon Bell, the biggest free agent signing for the Jets since pretty much ever. Yeah, he didn't want him. And he wanted to make sure that everybody knew that as soon as he dumped McCagnin's body overboard, that he didn't want Bell either. Now, I'd say that the news leaked, but it didn't leak. It rushed. And look, I get it. A lot of coaches don't love big signings, especially big money signings, big money going to running backs. In fact, I don't know any coaches that like that. Gaze would not be the first head coach to say that signing a free agent back to a big money deal is a waste of money. But he might be the first head coach, an interim GM, to dump all over the team's star free agent before letting him run the ball even once. Are you trying to lose the team before you even coach the team? All of which had Lev tweeting. He took out his phone and he thumbed out the following. There's been a bunch of of false reports and speculation about me in the past, about things I've said and done. So I'm used to this. I don't jump to conclusions when I hear or see a story that may affect me. Even if reports are true, that won't stop me from doing what I came here to do. Everyone has a job to do, and I'm going to do mine. And whether people like me or not, I'm here to win football games. Let me translate that for you. Translation, I guess my new head coach doesn't want me here, but I'm here, so what the hell can I do? And by the way, what the hell is going on with the Jets that they dropped a huge chunk of change on a guy that the head coach didn't want? How did Christopher Johnson sign off on that? Christopher Johnson thought so highly of Adam Gaze that after knowing him for only a few months, just gave him the organization. But at the same time, did not consult with him on the signing of Le'Veon Bell. But then did listen to him when it came to firing the GM. But if you listen to Johnson, Gaze was not involved in the firing at all. This had nothing to do with... uh with Adam, I mean, I want a, a good give and take between between our GM and and the coach. This this was not uh, one person or another winning a a power struggle. This was completely my decision. Sounded like he was gonna start crying when he answered that. That sounded kind of shaky. All right, so Adam had nothing to do with it. All right, all right, Chris. Adam had nothing to do. The coach had nothing to do with the firing of the GM. Never mind all the reports that they were not on the same page. All right. All right, fine. So then what that means is there's two options. The dude with the crazy eyes, who you've known for only a few months, was involved in the firing of the GM of the last few years, or you want us to believe that he was not involved at all, and this entire idiotic situation is on your hands. So either you're lying about this power play, or 
You didn't notice it. Either way, it's a terrible look. And I'm not sure who's in over his head more. Gaze or Johnson. Either way, these two dudes are perfect for each other. And perfect for the Jets. J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. Embarrassing as they ever were. Neil O'Shea is my guest. Neil, it's so good to have you back. How are you? Good, good. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Neil, thanks so much for doing it. You know, if you don't mind, Neil, I think to fully understand where this organization is, and before we get to tonight's game, can I get you just to go back to April 21st of 2018? You'd been swept by New Orleans. It was a really tough finish to a really good season, but it was also the 10th straight loss in the postseason. Can you tell me what kind of emotions were you feeling at that point? Well, you know, I, I think everyone got a little carried away with the 10th straight loss, right? I mean, when I think six of them were to Golden State. So, there was, you know, there's no indignity there when they basically swept their way to the finals every year through the Western Conference. But, you know, what, it was really kind of a wake-up call, Jim. I think, you know, we've discussed this. We were, we were really conservative at the trade deadline, you know, last year. We felt like we had a team that was really capable as constructed to get through the first round. And, you know, then we were kind of looking ahead at, you know, Golden State and Houston. They re- Both of them looked pretty unbeatable at that point in February. And we really were, you know, conservative about including assets and deals that could hurt the long-term future of the organization for what might have just been an incremental upgrade. Now, as it turned out, you know, we, we miscalibrated. We had some injuries going into that, into that playoff um, run. Alvin Gentry and his guys did an unbelievable job. Um, everybody had career runs in the playoffs for them. And, um, and it kind of woke us up that we, you know, we need to be more aggressive supporting the current core rather than just asset preservation going forward. You know, I understand that, Neil. I respect that. I would still say that it would have been very easy, maybe even very understandable, for you to make some big moves in the offseason, either with your coaching staff or with your core players. And with respect to what you just said, you didn't do those things. Why didn't you? Well, I think, you know, we discussed after the season was, you know, we are going to look at that playoff sweep and we're going to learn from it and we're going to react to it. But we're not going to overreact to four games in April after winning 49 games and being the three seed. So, you know, we, we didn't skate into the playoffs as an eight with a 500 record. I mean, we almost won 50 games. We were the three seed in the Western Conference. So we had earned the right to be there. And that was a testament to the job Terry had done all year in the core of the roster. So, you know, we believed in that group. We just felt like, you know, there were some areas that it needed to be supported. And we did that, you know, pre, we did that, you know, in the offseason, adding Seth Curry. We did that by creating more playing time for Zach Collins. And, you know, Yusuf Nurkic came back a much better player. We saw his growth potential. And then, you know, we, we actually doubled down on it at the trade deadline with Rodney Hood. And, you know, then in the buyout market with Ennis Cantor. So, like I said, I think, you know, we didn't want to, we didn't want to, overreact to a playoff loss to a very good team with, you know, all-star players on it. Um, We didn't want to take it for granted either. But like I said, we believed in our coaching staff. Um, We had great support from, you know, from Paul, God rest his soul, that, you know, once we kind of did our analysis after the season and showed him where we could improve and why we should continue to believe in the core of the roster, you know, he was all in and he was fully committed to the direction of the franchise. Neil O'Shea joining us. I mean, you're, you're being very tactical and very strategic about it, not emotional. I still think that it took a lot of courage as well as a strength and conviction in your vision and your work to stay the course, and you did, and it's paying off. But then, Neil, this year has been so challenging because 
I mean, you have injuries. You have the passing of Paul Allen, as you point out, a season-ending injury to Nurk, the car accident involving Jonathan Yim. Any of these incidents could have derailed the season, but the team just kept on battling and fighting. What has this season been like for you from an emotional standpoint? Well, you know, you're right. I mean, there have been a lot of swings. You know, we, we, we felt so good about where our roster was, you know, adding Rodney and Ennis, you know, at the trade deadline in the buyout market. We felt like it was the deepest and most talented team we'd had since we'd, we'd been in Portland. And then to watch Nurk, who really is the emotional heart and soul. I mean, obviously, Damian Lillard's our leader. You know, he's our general. But, you know, Nurk is the kind of guy, he, he's an incredible spirit. And as what was really considered a reclamation project when we got him, you know, he's so intrinsically invested in our organization because of what we had been able to do, you know, for him and in turn what he's done for us. And, you know, and then on a basketball side, you know, Jim, he's, he's our highest net rating player. You know, his on-off rating is second in the league among centers behind only Brooke Lopez. And, you know, we were 10.5 points per 100 better when Nurk was on the floor. So, you know, not only have to deal with Nurk and losing him emotionally and losing, you know, one of the best rim protectors and physical presences in the league, but, you know, then to have Ennis come in and then Ennis separates the shoulder and we've got him playing at 50%. So, you know, I mean, it's really a testament to Terry being able to keep the group together, being able to continually, like, plug guys in into our system, making sure that we have, you know, one of the things we did in the offseason, not to get off track, was instead of trying to find guys that did things we didn't have, we were really committed to getting more of what we were doing well. So Ennis, you know, left block, you know, free throw line, elbow, offensive rebounder like Nurk. Rodney Hood's another guy, plays a very similar style to our perimeter guys that have been successful. We got him. So we really wanted to make sure that we were not as vulnerable as we'd been in the past to one or two injuries because we were too top heavy. And I think we're seeing the fruits of that right now. But a lot of the credit goes to Terry and the coaching staff that they kept all those guys engaged. You know, there were guys like Zach Collins when we brought Ennis Cantor in that completely lost his role in his playing time. And then we asked him to step right back in when we got into the uh, you know, late season and into the playoffs. And, and he hasn't missed a, missed a beat, and he's been on a great run. Neil O'Shea joining us. What a great answer that is, Neil. I appreciate that. It's like when you have guys like that and you're talking about plugging them in and the coaches have to keep them engaged, but you are trying to bring in different guys with different games and different talents and different skill sets. So when you bring in like a Seth Curry and a Rodney Hood and an Ennis Cantor, you want to evaluate their talent, of course, but how do you evaluate how they might fit culturally and whether or not they'll actually step up when they need to? How do you evaluate that type of thing? Well, and, and I appreciate you bringing that up because that's, that's paramount to us. Um, you know, we, we build our organization on talent, character, and chemistry, and we, we won't sacrifice any of those three, Jim. If, if it's a guy that we really feel like isn't going to assimilate into our locker room culture, you know, how, what we expect from guys off the floor, you know, we've had to take passes on guys that were, you know, have big names that are, you know, that are really talented, but we know they're not going to fit into how we do things. And, you know, four years ago, we had a lot of turnover, and we built our culture around Damian. Um, you know, the kind of person he is on and off the court. And we want guys that, you know, respond to the same kind of triggers and, you know, and have the same value system, you know, as people. And it's really important. And I think, you know, you know, my staff does a great job. Bill Branch is one of the best pro personnel guys in the league. And he does a great job on Intel, making sure that, you know, their character off the floor reconciles with their abilities on the floor. 
you know, as an example, Neil, right? Like Rodney Hood, part of the move to get him was he had to give up his bird rights. What did that say about him and that he was willing to do that to join you and be a part of this? Well, you know, and, and I appreciate Rodney doing that. You know, we had a lot of talks with Rodney and his agent at the time about, you know, where he was going to fit in. And, you know, and we had to show them examples, Jim. I think one of the benefits of being together, you know, people look at, <clears throat> you know, myself and Terry being here for seven years and they point to that playoff sweep. <clears throat> And they were looking at changes. But one of the things people fail to value is when you have consistency, right, and in the organization, you start building a track, a track record. So when we can point to guys that had struggled in other places, like Yusuf Nurkic, like Mo Harkless, like Al Farouk Aminu, you know, guys that have come in, um, you know, and they flourished in our system and our culture, it makes it that much easier for Rodney and his representatives to say that they're willing to give up their bird rights knowing that it's a nurturing environment, it's an empowering environment, and it was going to give him an opportunity to getting back to being the player that he was during his tenure in Utah, you know, that had him on such a great career tra- trajectory. Neil O'Shea joining us, you bet. Before you go, Neil, you mentioned that Damian Lillard is your leader. We know this. Less than a month after you arrived in Portland, you drafted him. I know that you saw so much in him at that time, and you have so much respect for him. I do as well. What do you make of how he responded to the end of last year, and then how much did that set the tone for everybody else around him? Well, you know, and look, and and with Dame, you know, four years ago, you know, I met with Dame and kind of laid out the plan, you know, that, you know, if we lost LaMarcus, we were going to go in a completely other direction. We were going to build around him, not just on the court, but, you know, in terms of our culture. And, and I wanted to know whether he was ready for that or not, because it was a lot of responsibility. It was a lot to take on for a young guy. And he immediately embraced it. He wanted it. And he's accepted all the, all the extra work that comes with that, Jim. You know, there are a lot of great players in our league, but when you take on and you carry that mantle for the organization and you help recruit and you indoctrinate people into our culture and you lift their spirits when maybe they're not playing and, you're a conduit for messaging from the coaching staff back to the locker room. You know, that, that can wear on players, but it comes so naturally to Damian because he is such a high-quality person. And that's why when we drafted him, you know, we gave him the ball day one. I mean, if you look back to our roster construction that first year, you know, we didn't bring in the veteran point guard, you know, hedging our bets. I mean, we said at the press conference, that's our guy. We're going with him day one. We'll live through the bumps and bruises, but this is our franchise point guard for the next decade. And, you know, Damon is, I mean, he's lived up to and surpassed all our expectations because not only does he get it done on the floor as a first-team All-NBA player, but every single day, the way that he treats everybody from the interns, the secretaries, the trainers, all the way up to the head coach, sets a standard of behavior for all of our guys. And, and that's why I think you see guys that have struggled in other places that are deep down really good guys that have excelled when they've gotten to us because – they basically see Dame and they try to emulate how he behaves. Yeah, it's so great to hear that about Damian Lillard, but not at all surprising. You know, I know it's a game day and I really appreciate your time so much. How about one quick thought? Time and time again, your team has faced a challenge and they have bounced back. They've got another one tonight in game two against Golden State. How do you expect everybody to respond to this challenge? Well, you know, look, look you know, I expect them to be ready. I mean, we we're only down six at the end of the third. Um, you know, we, you know, Golden was on more rest than we were. But if you look at the first two series, you know, OKC won their first game at home against us in game three. You know, Denver, um, you know, Denver won game one in Denver. Um, you know, it's not unprecedented. I mean, the reason they're the three-time champions and, you know, have a two-time MVP running their team is 
they win games. You know, they don't they don't lose at home. I think they're eighteen and one right now in in home games. So or in game one. So you know, look, it was a tall task to go get that win after you know the emotion of coming back from down seventeen at Denver and winning a game seven and advancing to the conference finals for the first time in two decades. But you know, our guys have so, shown resilience all year. That's who they are. They're going to compete. They're going to be ready. Whether it's enough to get it done against you know possibly the greatest constructed roster of all time, you know, under Bob Myers' direction or not, you know, we'll see. But it's not going to be for a lack of effort. It's not going to be for guys, you know, um, you know, worrying about what the result was in the fourth quarter of game one. They're going to look forward and realize that we've faced adversity all year. We've overcome it in the regular season. We've overcome it in the first two rounds of the playoffs. And, you know, Golden's going to have a fight on their hands. Always. Portland going up game two tonight. That's at Golden State, 9 p.m. Eastern. He is the president of basketball operations, seven years with that organization. Now he is the 10th GM in franchise history, Neil O'Shea. Neil, I so appreciate the relationship and you coming on the show on a game night. Thank you so much for a great conversation. Great. Thanks for having me on, Jim. Let's go to San Antonio, Gino. Gino, what's up? What's going on, Romy? How's life treating you, How you doing, bud? Good, good. How about you? What's up? Man, I'm doing real good. But, you know, between the uh, NBA lottery and the impending smack-off, I felt the need to drop you a phone call. You know, I'm going to keep my focus uh, on the greater New York area for today. Hey, Knicks fan, stop acting like you got robbed during the lottery, you idiots. Yeah, I'm talking to you, Stephen A. Smith, and you, Spike Lee, and all you Knicks fans. You people realize you had a 14% chance of winning the lottery, right? 14%. You, you do know that that means those are bad odds, correct? I mean, by comparison, Parody Larry has roughly a 14% chance of not getting buzz when he calls. A bag of donuts has about a 14% chance of making it through the night at Beak's house. 14% means it is highly likely that things do not go your way, Knicks fans. But in all honesty, Zion to the Pelicans. Zion to the Pelicans. Really, NBA. Really, Silver. You can say whatever you want about Stern, but I promise you this. Giving the biggest name to hit the NBA since LeBron a minimum three-year sentence to New Orleans, that would have never happened on Stern's watch. And to all the flat-earther, tinfoil, hat-wearing people who are trying to chime in that the fix was in and Silver gave the Pels the number one pick to save the franchise, just remember, losing New Orleans representation, that's not something that any league is really losing sleep over. And as for the smack-off and quasi-qualified callers like Rick and Buffalo, my dude, what exactly is going on when you are making phone calls to this show? I mean, are you constantly passing a kidney stone during phone calls? Are you tearing your groin during your phone calls? Why are you screaming all the time, my man? Is it because you have no actual takes, so you need this affected voice to try to stay relevant? Well, uh, it's not working. It's not working, Rick. You're not fresh. You're not even the latest person to decide that screaming your phone calls is how you're going to be relevant on the show. Screaming Mike in Vegas perfected it a long time ago. Bobby in Brooklyn also could not modulate his tone very effectively. Jim in Fall River also tore the volume knob off at 11. And you know what, Rick? You're a lot like Jim. The only difference is that, one, he had takes and was funny, and two, whereas one time he had a donkey on a call, You are the donkey on all of your phone calls, my man. So please, Rick, do not try to sell me that that is your actual voice. I refuse to believe that. Please don't tell me at the dinner table 
that when you ask your mom to pass the salt, it sounds like, Mom, please pass the salt and pepper. Mom. No, no, bro. You are not fresh. You are not relevant. And frankly, my advice is keep the fake affected voice because it's probably all you've got. Just my two cents. June 21, Romy. See you then. There's the RSVP I was waiting on. Left in Laguna. What's up, champ? Not much, Jimmy. How you doing? Good, good. What's up? Listen, bro, real quick. The Adam Gaze-less Dolphins will be 8-8 eight eight this year. Book it. Um, hey, Gino, you talked a lot about percentages in that call, bro. Here's the percentage chance you'll factor in the smack-off this year. Zero. And, Jimmy, you keep saying smack-off 25 is Brad versus the field. Uh, dude, unless your nickname for me is The Field, I assume you're referencing his white trash backyard. But uh, I got a few questions for Brad, and I want answers. Uh, Brad, save the gimmick jokes, the ear blasts, and don't bother with your Dick Flowers comments either, okay? Because quite frankly, that dude is like on jungle welfare. You know, he does none of the work. He demands half the money and takes all the credit. So let's put that to bed. Just answer my questions, Brad. Number one, why did my 2016 smack-off winning call rattle you so bad that you defended about as well as Alvin's fishnet condoms? Number two, why were you still so rattled in 2017 smack-off that you just withdrew? And number three, why was snitching and complaining your way to a rule change against me the only way for you to win? With photos in your underwear, I might add. And I'm gimmicky? No, bro. You are a gimmicky little bitch. And you're also a gimmicky little snitch. Telling on me, getting rules changed. Bro, you know what you are? You're the four-time smack-off whiner posing in those photos with that resting snitch face like an Abercrombie and snitch model. Listen, bro, the PGA Championship tees off today. Are you planning to phone in any rules violations on that golf narc hotline? Anyways, Brad and Caro narc, tell me why you're a gimmicky little snitch. Because I just gave you a radio version of an adult cirque. And Brad, this time it might be for fun, but come June 21st, bro, I'm playing for skin. Let's go to Fall City. Liz in Fall City is back. What's going on, Liz? Hey, Jim. How are you? Good, Liz. How are you? I'm great. You know, earlier in the week, when you announced Keith Arnold was leaving, I got so worried because that would mean the tiger-honk bromance between Keith and Hawk was going to be severed. Until this morning, when I saw the new guy, it's Ritz, tweeting about Tiger. I see you working, Hawk. Out with the old honk and in with the new. Anyway, good luck, Keith. We're all going to miss you. And were you, Jim, going on the Woodscopes June 21st after the smack-off and war Bruce Willis starring in his new movie, The Sixth Blintz? I see fat people. Good night now!